Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're descending the 70 steps of light slumber and starting our exploration of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Before we get into all that dreamy stuff, however, what is going on? We've got the return of Matt. Yay! (laughs) Welcome back, Matt. Welcome back. How are you feeling, Matt? I'm here in spirit, if not so much in body. (laughs) (laughs) You you seem a bit better than when we saw you the other evening. Matt has been uh, suffering with COVID and has been laid up in bed for a few weeks. Yeah, it was not a pleasant experience whatsoever. You recommend people get their booster jabs then? Oh, fuck yes. (laughs) You want anything else other than this shit? It was really bad. Oh, God. All this has led to a slight delay in our production the christmas cards went out late but hopefully some of you will have received them by now and also blasphemous tome issue eight will be going out soon so that should be hopefully winging its way to you sometime this month january 22 and of course paul you were at dragon meet a little while ago now that we're recording and we recorded those episodes do you want to tell people what to look out for in their feeds yeah, so we've got two special episodes going out. One commemorating the Call of Cthulhu 40th anniversary, led by Mike Mason, featuring myself and Mike, along with Lynn Hardy and Lee Carnell, who has created The Doll's House, a online character generator for Call of Cthulhu. Then secondly, there's a panel on Rivers of London, the new role-playing game from Chaosium, again featuring Lynn Hardy and myself, with also the author of that best-selling series, Ben Aronovich. Also, whilst at Dragon Meet, I was invited to take part in a panel hosted by What Would the Smart Party Do podcast, which, as always, comes highly recommended. That featured Gaz and Baz of that show, along with myself and Matt Hart from Steamforged Games. And it was a panel about writing RPGs for publication, something that all four of us have some experience of yeah i I think that was a really good panel actually i I hope it was useful for people it was because often with panels it's a case of you're giving your views about scenarios or bits of lovecraft sort of stuff and it's a bit not woolly but it's, it's just down to your opinions whereas this was concrete advice about things that we'd all done so it felt mm. like a really strong topic to talk about so i hope that is a useful panel for people and you can find that like i said on the what would the smart party do podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts and now our main topic the dream quest of unknown kadath while hp lovecraft is mainly remembered as a horror writer there is an entire subset of his fiction that's really much closer to fantasy the dreamland cycle borrowed heavily from lord dunsany and takes us into a magical world inspired by lovecraft's own lucid dreaming of the many stories that he wrote in the cycle, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is the one that really fleshes out the setting. And this setting has in turn gone into the Call of Cthulhu RPG, becoming an enduring part of the mythos as presented there, and appearing in a variety of scenarios and campaigns, as well as a setting book devoted entirely 
to the Dreamlands. Lovecraft wrote The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath between October 1926 and January 1927. It was his first novel, soon followed by The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, and later, At the Mountains of Madness. At over 42,000 words is the second longest of his works after Charles Dexter Ward. In his annotated book, Leslie Klinger talks about this perhaps just being a kind of a practice run for Lovecraft, mm. that he didn't really intend it to be a finished work or a published work rather. So it was an exercise for Lovecraft in writing a longer piece. The protagonist, Randolph Carter, appears in a number of Lovecraft's other stories. The Statement of Randolph Carter, The Unnameable, The Silver Key, Through the Gates of the Silver Key, as well as mentions in the case of Charles Dexter Ward and Out of the Eons. And Lovecraft, as I mentioned, had been writing stories set in the Dreamlands for several years before he got around to this novel. Some of the key stories include Polaris the White Ship, The Doom that Came to Sarnath, The Cats of Ulthar, Selephaeus, The Quest of Erinon, and The Other Gods. It is, however, the Dreamcast of Unknown Kadath that draws a lot of these scenes together, repurposing ideas and images and locations from many of these stories and weaving them into a more cohesive setting. These Dreamlands tales were heavily inspired by Lord Dunzany, similar in both content and tone. Lovecraft also credited William Thomas Beckford's Vathek as a major inspiration. I looked at that while I was in university. I read somewhere, I can't remember, I'll probably get the details horribly wrong, that I think it was after Lovecraft's death, Lord Dunsany was actually presented with some of Lovecraft's Dreamland's writings, and he read them and uh, said something like, uh, yes, it does appear that Mr. Lovecraft has adopted my style, but I suppose he's welcome to do so. Lovecraft was concerned that the story was a failure and that the very plethora of weird imagery may have destroyed the power of any one image to produce the desired impression of strangeness. And I don't think I entirely disagree with his summary there. Don't get me wrong, Dreamquest of Unknown Kadath is one of my favourite Lovecraft stories. I've read it, I think, including the couple of times I've reread it for preparing for this podcast, I've read it six or seven times over the years. Certainly when I was young, it was my favourite of his, and it's still, it's still up there. But on the other hand, particularly going over it this time, I did find that a lot of the, the throwaway references and the descriptions and the weird names and so on do get a bit numbing after time, that if you read the whole thing in one sitting, or at least over a fairly short period of time, I think the risk is a lot of it does wash over you. Yeah, I was thinking this while I was reading it yesterday. It's a bit like, I like honey and I like jam, but I don't want to just eat honey and jam. You know, I want it on bread or, you know, with something else. What I'm saying is it's just a very rich diet of adjectives and nouns and descriptions of things, often just in passing, but often a lot of very rich description. It just becomes a bit overpowering after a while, I think, to, as a reader, to me. But on the other hand, I think this is one of the things that makes it very appealing from a role-playing point of view, in that Lovecraft did throw in all these passing references to locations and people and strange creatures. And sometimes they're just names, sometimes they're brief descriptions, but very little of it is 
really fleshed out. And this is the kind of stuff that really inspires role players because you're looking at all these things and thinking, right, well, what can I do with this? And I think another thing that it does, perhaps that we'll come on to later, but as a sort of overview, is that it ties up or not ties up, but relates a lot of disparate things that are mentioned elsewhere in the mythos. Mm. There's a lot of stuff that is reincorporated into this story. So it's all in one place, which again, for role playing can be useful because it gives us a, an overview of a lot of things and how they perhaps relate to one another. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, I mean, Matt, I know that you're particularly fond of the court of Azathoth as oh, yes. uh, a, a creation. And I think it's fair to say that almost everything that we draw upon for the gaming aspects of it comes from this story. From the many times that a particular paragraph is slightly tweaked <laughs> in a few statements here and there, yes. Yeah. The story is a first draft. Lovecraft didn't revise it at all. He didn't even settle on a title. According to Leslie Klinger's The New Annotated H.P. Lovecraft, Beyond Arkham, titles he considered included The Dream Quest of Randolph Carter, A Pilgrim in Dreamland, A Dreamland Quest, Stroke Pilgrimage, The Seeking of Dreamland's Gods, Past the Gate of Deeper Slumber, In the Gulfs of Dream, that's a nice one, mm. A Seeker in the Gulfs of Dream, The Quest of the Gods on Kadath, and The Seeking of Unknown Kadath. Yeah, some really evocative titles there. But I think the one we're left with is the best one. Yeah. You know, the one that actually got used. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember who actually chose that title. It might have been August Ehrlich. He did one thing right. Also, if this is a first draft, good job. I guess it's the kind of first draft where he was revising it as he went along. I imagine so. The point is that he didn't go back to it at a later stage and yeah. go through and think, right, these are the bits that don't work, this is the bit I need to fix and so on. And so, yeah, that's pretty damned impressive. And as we're saying, sadly, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath was not published in Lovecraft's lifetime. Its first appearance was in 1943 in the Arkham House collection Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Let's take a look at the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath itself. Three times Randolph Carter dreamed of the marvellous city, and three times was he snatched away while still he paused on the high terrace above it. All golden and lovely it blazed in the sunset, with walls, temples, colonnades, and arched bridges of veined marble, silver-basined fountains of prismatic spray in broad squares and perfumed gardens and wide streets marching between the delicate trees and blossom-laden urns and ivory statues in gleaming rows, while on steep northward slopes climbed tiers of red roofs and old peaked gables harbouring little lanes of grassy cobbles. It was a fever of the gods, a fanfare of supernal trumpets and a clash of immortal cymbals. Mystery hung about it, as clouds about a fabulous, unvisited mountain, and as Carter stood breathless and expectant on that balustraded parapet, there swept up to him the poignancy and suspense of almost vanished memory, the pain of lost things, and the maddening need to place again what once had an awesome and momentous place. That is 
a lovely piece of writing, I think. Yes, it's archaic in its phrasing. Yes, it's probably got a few too many adjectives, but I think it paints a wonderful picture of this idyllic dream city. Having been to Boston, though, doesn't remind me at all of it. <laughs> spoilers, Matt. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I, I really like it. Also, prismatic spray. <gasps> yes. Straight out of Jack Vance, yeah. Well, this predates Jack Vance, so yeah. Yeah. Because he gets the credit for creating prismatic spray, which was uh, a spell in AD&D. Yeah, which comes from the dying earth. A low-level illusionist spell, I think it was, in AD&D. Whereas in the dying earth, the excellent prismatic spray is something you do not want to be on the receiving end of. It does horrible things. So Randolph Carter becomes obsessed with finding this city, which called up glimpses of a far forgotten first youth, when wandering pleasure lay in all the mystery of days. He praised the hidden gods of dream that brewed capricious above the clouds on unknown Kadath, but to no avail. So how is this, you think, from a gaming perspective as a hook? We're always looking for ways of getting player characters involved with what we've got plotted out. Is this the kind of thing that you think could work in a game? You've dreamt of this wonderful city, go find it. I think it depends on your player that has that hook or players that have that hook because they have to be quite proactive and have to be quite driven rather than being a reactive kind of player character where they're just bouncing off the things that the scenario provides them. If you're thinking of Carter as a player character, yeah, he's one hell of a driven, right, let's go go grab this hook by the balls mm. and we'll run after it. It's not what I think a lot of players would do necessarily with something that's otherwise relatively tenuous and vague. Also, we have to bear in mind, as we will learn, that Carter is a very experienced dreamer. He's not, if you like, he's not a first-level character. He's not a <laughs> beginning investigator. He's a seasoned adventurer. I can envisage this very much being either a find-your-own-solo-adventure or a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, one-keeper, one-player yeah. game because it's very much directed by that single player going on various quests through quite a twisty-turny narrative. I think that would work pretty well. And also it strikes me as being a good example of the kind of hook that a player comes up with rather yeah. than a GM. My character has been dreaming about this fabulous city. He really wants to go find it. Can you do something with that? Yeah, okay. Uh, let me let me see what I can do. And also, let's address the Shantak in the room. <laughs> so how the hell do we actually pronounce Kadath? Because this is a pronunciation that... I've said differently for most of the time that I've known this story, and it's only recently having heard podcasts, particularly from the HP Podcraft and the readings of the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, that I've come to start calling it Kadath. But when I started reading the books many, many years ago, I always pronounced it Kadath. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with Kadath, but I can see how you can get away with saying it's different regions of the dreamlands have their own different pronunciation <laughs> of it. Some places pronounce it Kadath, some pronounce it Kadathath. You could have lots of different interpretations there. I'm with Kadath, just the obvious to me, but, but like you say, there's various ways you could say it. Like I say, I've come around to calling it Kadath just simply because it's what everyone else does, but in my head it's always Kadath. The answer Carter decides is to go on to Kadath and petition the gods directly. 
he is definitely a PC. He wants to go toe-to-toe <laughs> with the gods. The problem is that he does not know where Kadath is. Small problem. Being an experienced dreamer, though, Carter enters the Dreamlands to search for it. So, this term, the Dreamlands, has really caught on in gaming. The source book is called H.P. Lovecraft's Dreamlands. And if you come across it in Call of Cthulhu scenarios, always the Dreamlands. But Lovecraft in this story tends to use Dreamland singular to refer to Earth's Dreamlands, what we'd refer to that. The Dreamlands plural refers to the fact that there are Dreamlands from other realms as well. Yeah. But when it comes to this particular setting the one that we think of as the dreamlands it's always dreamland yeah i mean it is a collection of lands isn't it or a collection of different islands and so on they sail across the ocean so you might call it dreamlands i suppose but yeah i've always had the impression that various different again different regions have their own different flavor Hmm. and that very much they are a group rather than a singular but i think the dreamlands just as a name is possibly more evocative as well Yeah, it suggests more complexity, I suppose. Mm. And sounds less generic. Mm. Carter descends the 70 steps to the Cavern of Flame and talks to the bearded priests, Nasht and Kamonthar. They advise him not to harass the Great Ones and warn that this would be the death of his soul. (laughs) They'll eat your soul. (laughs) These two are pretty interesting, aren't they? These Mm. two guys, Nasht and Kamonthar. So you, you walk down these 70 steps. It's almost like a method of going to sleep, it suggests to me, you know, like counting sheep, that kind of technique. You're imagining yourself walking down these steps, you know, and you're counting them, like counting backwards from 10 or whatever with anesthetic. But then you see these two guys and you can have a chat with them and they give you advice about where to go in your dreams. Like travel agents. Yeah. <laughs> Furthermore, the priests tell him that... Not only had no man ever been to unknown Kadath, but no man had ever suspected in what part of space it may lie, whether it be in the dreamlands around our world, or in those surrounding some unguessed companion of Formahalt or Alderbran. Now, there's some lands that you'd be interested to find out what the dreams are like. Yeah. And who's doing the dreaming over there? Mm. Exactly. Only three human souls had ever crossed the Black Empire's gulfs to other dreamlands, and two came back quite mad. Definitely PCs. (laughs) One of the perils of this journey is the risk of stumbling across the court of Azathoth and his messenger, the crawling chaos, Nilathotep. I really like this idea that alien minds have created these alien dreamlands that are just so beyond our capacity to imagine, our capacity to understand, that to visit them is to invite madness. Mm. We don't get much portrayal of those, do we, anywhere? No. What about the Library of Solano? Where's that? On Solano. Yeah. Uh, Solano's a star, and is supposed to be on one of the planets orbiting it. And so it's, it's off in the gulfs of space. But in like real physical space or in a dreamland space. Bear in mind that this is an August Derleth creation, not a Lovecraft one. But the way Derleth spells it out in the stories, I did look this up a while back for something else. And it is very much meant to be a physical place on this alien world. Right. There is a campaign that deals with going there physically as well. You have to brew up Space Mead, fly over there and then look around the library. Oh, Space Mead. 
But I must admit, I've written a scenario where I've treated it very much as a dreaming experience as well, Mm. which works much better for me. I'm quite happy just to reinvent things. (laughs) Carter is not put off by any of this. He bids farewell to the priests, then boldly descends the 700 steps to the gate of deeper slumber and sets out through the enchanted wood. In these twisted woods, lit by the phosphorescence of strange fungi, dwell the furtive and secretive zoogs. While small, these rat-like creatures are intelligent and dangerous, responsible for the disappearances of many careless travellers. They also know secrets of the dreamland and of the waking world, since the wood at two places touches the lands of men. And this is something that, when I was rereading this, looking for dreamland's ideas a while back, really connected with me the idea that there are these places where the physical Mm. realms of the dreamlands and the waking world just touch on each other places where the fabric is thin yeah i mean that's one of the things that carter goes through isn't it in one of the other stories he sort of passes through Mm. like a somewhere from the real world and ends up in the dreamlands but also there's the reference to the zoogs here Mm. now you mentioned them being rat-like do we actually get told what they, they're like? No, we're just told they're small and brown, I think. Because I think we see it in illustrations, and they make a fluttering noise, which at yeah. one point I wondered, well, obviously a fluttering noise can imply wings, but it can just be a noise that they make with their voices. But I almost wondered if they had wings, if they were like small birds of some sort. But mm. I didn't really come across anything that said they weren't, but possibly later on in the story that might get because we do meet them again, so... Uh... But certainly in the role-playing game, they're depicted very much as these rat-like creatures with tentacles. Yeah, very much so. Which doesn't come from the story. Yeah, I'm always interested to sort of look at what the actual source material says about things and how the original story describes something, because artists' renditions of them, which, whilst great, kind of become the canon look of these things. Hmm. And it's interesting to look back. And Obviously, the artist has interpreted what was on the page but they've added a lot to it of their own creation so it's interesting to me to strip it back and sort of see what lovecraft had in mind Mm. because often authors don't necessarily give you that much physical description of the creatures that they're talking about there's hints but they don't give you a full description necessarily the same thing happens in gaming material expanding upon that one throwaway line where it says about two places on earth that it touches I remember reading from the Dreamlands book that one of those locations is the woods just outside Roanoke. Oh, right. They kind of read between the lines and it kind of explains that that's what happened to the lost colony, that they all wandered off into the woods after writing their Croatoan note and then just disappeared off into the enchanted wood. Mm. But it's worth pointing out that this is the woods that touch on two places. We discover a, another location elsewhere in fact, more than one other location elsewhere where, again, the waking world and the dreamland seem to be intertwined. Mm. This can happen almost anywhere. Happily, Carter is known to the Zoogs, and the Council of Sages talk to him over a cup of fermented sap. Juicy. Mm. This sap was taken down from a haunted tree unlike the others, which had grown from a seed dropped down by someone on the moon. That's a long way for a seed to fall. It is. Carter's Zoog friends give him a bottle of the stuff to take with him. This is moon wine, isn't it? Yeah. From the moon tree, which 
just sounds great too. I love that. <laughs> it's got an old classic meme of it's dangerous to go out alone. Here, take this and get pissed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but going back to what you were saying about this being overly rich, Paul, this isn't just fermented sap. This is fermented sap taken from a haunted tree, which had grown from a tree dropped down by someone on the moon. That's like three layers of weird all in one drink. Yeah, I fancy that. Sounds good. Mm. I think that would give you good dreams. <laughs> While none of the council know the location of Kadath, one very ancient Zug believes there is the last copy of the inconceivably old narcotic manuscripts in Ulthar. Yeah, these narcotic manuscripts, a mythos tome in uh, Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. There is also a priest there who had tried to spy on them as they danced atop a mountain by moonlight. Is that a reference to the story of the other gods? I think so. That's, um, what's name? Barzai the Wise? Or at least the companion to Barzai the Wise. Is that the guy that falls into the sky? Yeah. That's a pretty cool story. That's a short story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It is, yeah. So again, yeah, we're getting those links to other stories here. We get two pretty much within a paragraph between that and the reference to Ulthar. Hmm. Just don't go and kill a cat. Not a good idea. Carter follows the river sky towards Ulthar, followed by furtive zoogs. They all skirt around a great stone slab with an iron ring in the forest floor, for they would not like to see the slab rise slowly and deliberately. Stopping off at a farmhouse, Carter asks questions about the gods, but the farmer and his wife would only make the Elder sign and tell him the way to Nur and Ulthar. Now, before we get into the Elder sign... I just want to say that bit about the slab rising. It's not, you know, they would not like to see this big stone slab rise up. It's they wouldn't like to see it rise slowly and deliberately. <laughs> it's the tension yeah. and the terror it builds. They'd be quite happy for it to be a jump scare and it just goes smack and open. It just implies, I think, whatever's slowly and deliberately opening it is really fucking scary. Whereas mm. it's just a curious phrase, it struck me. But yeah, then we come on to the Elder Sign. It's only mentioned a couple of times in Lovecraft's writing, isn't it? In, in here and in The Descendant. Which was written around the same time, yeah. Klinger talks about it perhaps being like a symbol you make with your hand, perhaps putting like your index finger and little finger up and holding your other fingers down, like sort of throwing the horns kind of thing. Yeah. Or maybe the, the little finger and the, and the thumb. It seems very much to me, it's a bit like when people sort of say something where they're tempting fate and then they touch wood sort of yeah. thing to not jinx something. It seems just like a little symbol that somebody might make as a sort of little superstitious sign. Well, with it being a hand gesture like this, it's much more, I'd say, like the sign of the evil eye to ward off evil influences. What is the sign of the evil eye? If I remember correctly, it is something very much like throwing the horns. So how does this fit with heavy metal... <laughs> being diabolical and uh, teaching us all to serve Satan. Poorly. What? I wouldn't have thought the rock music was particularly popular in Ulthar. I don't know. There are some fairly cool cats there. But um <laughs> Yeah, I find it really interesting that the older sign, which has become such a big part of the Cthulhu mythos, basically comes out of these two almost throwaway references in this and The Descendant, which is not exactly one of Lovecraft's better-known stories, and is there in both cases as simply a hand gesture. I have seen 
arguments that the round stones with the five pointed stars on them in at the Mountains of Madness are meant to be elder size because they certainly reflect what Durlith used as the elder sign in his stories. But I don't really think there's any indication in At the Mountains of Madness that this is the case. But Durlith, I can't remember which story it is. Uh, I remember it's got Witch in the name, uh, which is Hollow or something like that, mm-hmm. has got this character who turns up basically with a whole bag full of these Elder Signs mm. and is basically dropping them off all over the place and using them as anti-mythos wards like crucifixes to vampires. And it seems to be very much at odds with Lovecraft's initial description here. I'd always thought of the headstones, well, exactly that, the headstones in At the Mountains of Madness, that they were just artistic depictions of the heads of the elder things. And it was just mm. a way that they kind of capped them off as the thing that sat on top of their heads after they'd been buried. But no, I remember we talked about Witch's Hollow quite a while ago now, wasn't it? So yeah, I remember the uh, just wantonly throwing out these stones and putting them <laughs> on windowsills and so on. Still, they've very much turned it into a physical thing rather than a hand gesture. Hmm. Soon after, Carter arrives in the pleasant suburbs of Ulthar, where no man may kill a cat. Yep, wise words. (laughs) The cats seem somewhat discomforted by Carter's zoog entourage. I think many people would be, to be honest. Carter makes his way to the Temple of the Elder Ones, where the priests and old records were said to be, seeking out the patriarch Atal, who had been up to the forbidden peak, Hathlegkla. I'm probably thinking there's another million and one interpretations of how that can be pronounced (laughs) in the stony desert and had come down again alive. From him, Carter learned many things about the gods, but mainly that they are indeed only Earth's gods, ruling feebly our own dreamland and having no power or habitation elsewhere. They might, Atal said, heed a man's prayer if in good humour. But one must not think of climbing to their onyx stronghold atop Kadath in the cold waste. Now, I'm fascinated by these other gods. As you mentioned, this isn't the first time they appear in Lovecraft's work, but they fit into, I'd say, a much larger discussion about the metaphysics of the dreamlands and how that relates to the mythos. Because the mythos is, in general, this very materialistic thing that you have these entities these alien presences which are seen by humanity as gods and worshipped by some people as gods but aren't really but here you have these entities in the dreamlands which i mean are they really gods how do they fit into the mythos what the fuck are they I mean, we're talking to a priest here. A priest is telling us this stuff. So he's going to say they're gods, right? Yeah. Also, I think in this passage, it relays that they are gods. They don't seem overly powerful, though. They're they're Mm. helped out and protected or looked after by some other gods that hang around them. Almost shepherded. Yeah, yeah. Or or like children in a, what's the word? Crash. Yeah, crash. That they're looked after by these other gods. Yeah, like you said, almost like they're infant gods. Yeah. Strange. But then, you know, it's all kind of strange. Even the gods are strange. But there really does seem to be a sharp difference between the presentation of the universe in general and the metaphysics that underline it. 
in the Dreamland stories than there is in the rest of Lovecraft's fiction. And I'd almost be tempted to treat them as two separate strands of fiction if they didn't overlap so much with all the references to Azathoth and Yalthrop and you know, everything else in this story. It's, it's difficult to disentangle them, but they, they've always seemed like an odd fit to me. Yeah, I think so. I don't think it all particularly fits together particularly well. It's hard to reconcile it all together. You know, if you're making a game world of it, I think it is hard to reconcile it all into one setting, if you like. I don't think these stories were necessarily written in that way. He's taking parts from other stories, but it's not like there was an overview of the whole thing that was particularly coherent. Oh, yeah. I mean, as we've said many times before, Lovecraft was not trying to create a canon. But at the same time, for us as game writers, we've got to try to work out how we use these elements mm. and how they fit together in our interpretation of Lovecraft's writings. And yeah, it's just a a difficult thing to consolidate, in my opinion. Atal warns Carter against seeking Kadath, and it is little help in identifying the city of Carter's dreams, suggesting that the Great Ones are hiding it from him. In desperation, Carter shares some of the moon wine given to him by the Zoogs to loosen Atal's tongue. This is a great technique in any RPG. Get an NPC <laughs> drunk and they will tell you whatever you want. I mean, he basically like plies him with it, doesn't he? He yeah. tricks him into drinking it. Now drunk, Atal tells Carter of a great image reported by travellers as carved on the solid rock of the mountain and Granach on the Isle of Oriab in the Southern Sea, depicting a likeness of the gods. There are people in the dreamlands descended from these gods, and Carter reasons that if he can see the carving, he will be able to identify them. Surely their home will be close to Kadath. So we get very much this idea that the gods bear children through human beings and, and other beings in the dreamlands, and that you can see their likeness which mm. is very much something we see in the Dunwich Horror as well, yeah. that uh, this Wilbur Waitley and his family and others around have some sort of look to them that in part comes from their relationships with Yogg-Sothoth and the things from the other side. You could also apply that similar kind of logic to Deep Ones as well with the Innsmouth look. Mm. Yeah, but at the same time, this seems to be a lot less unwholesome and dangerous. It, I think, it feels more like something out of Greek or Norse mythology than something out of the mythos. Yeah, I was thinking that. I mean, I can't pinpoint exactly what that is. I'm not great on <laughs> real-world Greek and uh, mythology and so on, but it does sound like something that would come out of one of those. I'm sure one of our listeners can inform us on that. I just interpret it as the mythos Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> Before Atel nods off into a drunken stupor, he tells Carter that he may be able to get passage to Engarnik from Dynathleen, a port town considered unwholesome by the people of Ulthar. Leaving the temple, Carter sees no sign of the Zoogs. They've mysteriously disappeared. But notices that the cats look well-fed and are licking their lips. Surely coincidence. One of the Zoogs had been eyeing up a black kitten, so Carter does not mourn their passing. There's a lot of death and mayhem in this story. Mostly precipitated by Carter travelling around from one place to another. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like 
animals and, and people and things help Carter and he just leaves a death and mayhem in his wake. And he doesn't really seem to give a shit either. <laughs> well, the cats in particular do seem downright genocidal at times. They're cats. I was about to say, yeah, it seems entirely fitting. What are the names of your cats again? Chaos and Anarchy, yes. Charming and fluffy if you're a human. <laughs> Terrifying if you're an animal smaller than a cat. <laughs> that night in Ulthar, Carter hears how some of the cats may have stolen off to those cryptical realms which are known only to cats and which villagers say are on the moon's dark side. Whither the cats leap from tall housetops, he fusses over the little black kitten for much of the night. Yeah, this is a great image of the cats like leaping off of rooftops to the moon. That's a very kind of dreamlike image, I think. That's great. It really is. But the way it's presented at this stage, it sounds very much like a myth or a tall tale or something that you think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice, that's cute. But <laughs> getting ahead of ourselves slightly later on in the story, you fucking see it happen. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's not just tween nonsense. No, they really do this. And also, not only have we got the prismatic spray, we've also got the dark side of the moon. So, you know, <laughs> this is like most of my teenage years was spent on such things. The following day, Carter joins a caravan journeying towards Dilathlene and travels with them for a week. Arriving at the city, he finds its thin angular towers of basalt look like the giant's causeway, and its streets are dark and uninviting. The town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land on earth, and of a few which are said to not be on earth. Carter learns that a ship from the Isle of Oriab is due in around a month. He's going to be waiting around there for a while. It's hard to get more information, however, as the locals prefer to talk about the black galleys that come to trade rubies for slaves who vanish below decks and are never seen again. That's not ominous at all. Big <laughs> yeah. hawking black ship, people go in, they never come out. <laughs> this is one of these things... We had similar discussions when we were talking about the Dunwich Horror and some of the things that were implied there. This is one of these classic occasions where Lovecraft is really heavily implying something but doesn't want to come out and say it. He's being quite coy. And I don't know whether this was him deciding that implication was scarier than just stating stuff or whether it was more the conventions of what would be publishable in the time though i guess if he was just writing this as an exercise for himself that was less of a concern but i'm always intrigued when he does stuff like this as to why and also whether something like that would work if we were narrating it in a game Again, I mean, hinting at stuff and leaving players to make their own conclusions is great, but he really does seem to dance around this. What are you referring to? The the fact that there's these unidentified slaves that are on the, the galleys? The fact that the people on the ship seem to be eating the slaves, because he talks about the fact that they go down below and never seen again. Later, there's some meat that's served that carter doesn't want to think about and when the cargo and everything is unloaded at the other end the slaves aren't anywhere to be seen well who's rowing the galley then the moon beasts aren't they yeah i get the impression it's moon beasts doing it and the slaves that are going down to their food 
Oh, okay. It's like stopping at the petrol station and just rather than putting a tank full of unleaded in it, it's now put, chuck a tank full of slaves in, then we'll be able to have the feast to row back to the moon. I've got to say that kind of washed over me a bit. Right, okay, I see. So you think it's moon beasts that are actually rowing the ships? I hadn't figured that. Yeah, because they're silent. There are all these strange smells that are coming up from down below and so on. Lovecraft keeps coming back to this in different ways. And it really does seem to me that he is all but shouting in our face, they're eating the slaves, folks. They're eating the slaves. Yeah, yeah. The wide-mouthed men who pilot the galleys wear their turbans humped up in two points above their foreheads and wear oddly short shoes. The odours from these galleys are not to be described. These are strange guys, right? Yeah. Some of the things in here feel like the constant references to slant-eyed people feels very racist terminology. Mm. Yeah. Although it's just a descriptor, you know, it's become an unacceptable term. This thing about oddly short shoes, you know, it's just <laughs> like, so what I'm saying is there are some things in here which are objectionable and there are other things that, and it puts you in mind, are these things objectionable too? No, wait, there's like, there aren't yeah. actually people with small feet or <laughs> with turbans that are covering up some sort of weird lumps on their heads, you know? It's, uh, yeah. it's a weird mishmash of, of things. But I think it just sows a lot of seeds of unknown here, of, of mystery, of, of strange things, of these places from far away that we don't really understand. And who are these people and what are they hiding? What are they covering up? I mean, there's partly that. But here, between the fact that they seem to have these horns that they're covering up with the turbans and the oddly short shoes and so on, that... Obviously, they're wearing these things to try to pass as normal human beings, but at the same time, these wide-mouthed men do seem to match a lot of the descriptors of perhaps satyrs or traditional demons and stuff like that, that they seem to have cloven feet and horns. And, and so I think that's very much what Lovecraft is trying to evoke here. Hmm. One of these merchants tells Carter of the icy desert plateau of Leng, dropping a bit of foreshadowing in there, and the high priest there who wears a yellow silken mask over its face, not his face, its face, and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery. I guess this must have come after Lovecraft had read The King in Yellow. It's before. Oh, no, that's right. Yes. Yeah, we, we went through this, didn't we? When yeah. We talked about The King in Yellow. He wrote this before he read The King in Yellow, even though, yes, it does seem like there are hints of it here. Parallel development. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you can imagine when Lovecraft did then read The King in Yellow, he'd be like, well chuffed, because he's like, oh, this ties in with something <laughs> I wrote. Great. It's like it's his whole thing of writing things that tangentially overlap. Here's a almost accidental, perhaps, tangential lap between the two things. Yeah, it's an echo of something that was written 30 years before. When one of the black galleys arrives, Carter shares the last of his moon wine with a crewman. Damn bottles that run out, so inconsiderate. <laughs> Despite finding his voice hateful, in turn the sailor shares some wine from a ruby bottle, which fills Carter with the dizziness of space and the fever of unimagined jungles. Because there's lots of jungles in space. It's a small thing, but I really like the fact that this bottle that he serves it from is carved from a single ruby. Yeah. When Carter recovers consciousness, he finds himself on the deck of the Black Galley, now out at sea. 
An indescribable stench comes from the hatches and the galley is propelled by those unseen rowers that we referred to earlier. Mm. And then we get a passage that is, as we were talking about before, absolutely packed with names and references, none of which are really elaborated upon. But I think it's the kind of thing that is a game you probably want to seize on and just rip to shreds just for inspiration. He saw slip past him the glorious lands and cities of which a fellow dreamer of earth, a lighthouse keeper in ancient Kingsport, had often discoursed in the old days, and recognised the temple terraces of Tsar, abode of forgotten dreams, the spires of infamous Thalarion, that demon city of a thousand wonders where the Eidolon Lathi reigns the charnel gardens of Zura, land of pleasures unattained, and the twin headlands of crystal meeting above in a resplendent arch which guard the harbour of Sona Nil, blessed land of fancy. Fuck me, there's a lot there. This reminds me a little bit of a Dreamlands game that I played some years back. And we were flying through the air. I can't remember how we were propelled through the air, but we were traveling over the lands. And the keeper was telling us, you know, you're flying over, I don't know, the harbor of Sonanil, and then, you know, below you see the Charnel Gardens of Zura. You know, if I if I just catch the phrases from this bit you've just read. It wasn't actually those places, it was other places. And one of the players said, have they got the names written on them like a map? Because <laughs> how do we know that those places are called this? <laughs> It's a tradition in the Dreamlands that you have to use these basalt blocks to go out to the outskirts of your town and perform these lovely little <laughs> art sculptures that can only really be viewed properly from above that spell out the name of your town. It's like the Nazca lines all over again. But when we come across all these hints and names and vague descriptions in Lovecraft stories, are we ever tempted to expand upon them ourselves? And what do we think of the pros and cons of doing so? I think you could, you know, if you wanted to take just that passage and create some kind of adventure around it, mm. they're quite evocative terms. You know, the charnel gardens of Zura makes me think of the charnel god, the story by um, Clark Ashton Smith. They're kind of evocative phrases which you can let your mind daydream on, I think, and come up with other images, perhaps. Do you find them useful, Scott? I do, and I find them inspirational in similar kind of ways. The problem is, because we're working in this shared world, and there's a lot of published material that in, say, the Dreamlands book and, and other published adventures, people have probably gone ahead and done that already. If you're doing it for your home group, that's fine. But it means that if you suddenly get this great idea, like you say, of the Charnel Gardens, Uzura, oh, I know what that should be, you know, this plant some fantastic ideas into my head. I'm going to go ahead and do this now. And then you find out that someone actually wrote up an entire description of them like 20 or 30 years ago, and it's nothing like you would have done, and it's not very interesting in your opinion. And it's sort of, okay. You can obviously create your own analogues for stuff like that and still take it as inspiration. But it's one of the difficulties in being one writer working in this, this huge shared world with dozens and dozens and dozens of other writers. Sometimes I think it was better just to leave them as vague references. Mm -hmm. 
The turbaned merchants give no indication of what they want with Carter, but he assumes that they are trying to keep him from his quest at the behest of the gods and that they are to deliver him to Nalathotep. Carter's captors offer him food, but he finds something very terrible in the size and shape of the meat. The fact he's got a nipple staring at him probably <laughs> set him off a little bit. Yeah, can you stop my steak smiling at me, please? It's putting me off. He is also horrified to realise that the boat is approaching a monstrous cataract wherein the oceans of Earth's dreamland drop wholly to abysmal nothingness and shoot through the empty spaces toward other worlds and other stars. So he's come all this way and the fucking flat earthers were right. <laughs> God damn it. They got there before us and dreamed the dream world flat. Christ. Damn it, I knew they were right all along. Well, I'm sorry, folks. What can I say? And inevitably, the boat plunges into the cataract and Carter experiences terrors of nightmare as Earth falls away and the great boat shoots silent and comet-like into planetary space. Emerging on the other side, Carter realises that they are approaching the dark side of the moon. So, up to this point, obviously, we've had a lot of wondrous things and strange creatures and so on, but it's felt like, I guess, a fantasy world that's rooted somewhat in the expectations of our waking world. And this is the first point at which I'd say it goes full bore, what the fuck. I mean, we've had the mm. hints of the cats jumping up to the moon, but we haven't seen that. But he's gone through this whirlpool and come out on the dark side of the moon. And this is such a big tonal shift, I'd say, in the story, just this one moment. Yeah, I mean, we've had him talking with cats as well. We've had him talking to Zoogs. He's played with the cats, but we haven't had him in conversation with the cats yet. That comes later. Have we not? Right, okay. Yeah, that's coming later, folks. <laughs> but it got me thinking if we were running this as a game... I like putting, as I think we all do, these what-the-fuck moments in the games where the players suddenly realise that the rules and expectations have completely changed. Do you think this is effectively one of those moments? Is, is this like something we could pull off ourselves in a game? Yeah, I think if people didn't know about the Dreamlands, I think Dreamlands is a bit like a fantasy land. You can imagine it almost as... It's not a D&D setting, but, you know, if you were playing D&D and you sail, you were sailing in a ship and it sailed off the edge of the world into space, you know, that would be pretty weird. And I think it's a kind of a parallel here that it's, it is an unexpected thing. Because as you say, Scott, otherwise it's been relatively realistic in the sort of things that have happened or, you know, more like our real world. There's also, if I remember right, from the story of The White Ship, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read it, isn't there... God, this same location is kind of hinted at as being perilous, that to go over the edge of it is to mm. invite death. So if you've previously stated that, oh, yeah, if you're travelling this part of the world in a quite famous vessel already, and that's saying, well, this this is, no, we, we've got to stay away from here. This is a really dangerous place. And then to suddenly, in a scenario, a few scenarios down the line, suddenly sail off the edge of it in one of these black galleys, that's, a, again, pulling the rug out from you and subverting expectations. Mm. Okay, well, let's leave Carter on his way to the dark side of the moon. 
There is no dark side of the moon, really. As a matter of fact, it's all dark. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Starting off with a thanks to Sophie Lee. Thanks also to Jack Gravy. Ah, and thank you very much to Tim McGonagall. And thanks to Death by Iowa. wonder how a state kills you. <gasps> with corn. Lots of corn. And also thanks to Paul Chavaria. And thank you very much to Yamamoto. And thanks to Stephen Anderson. And thank you very much to Andrew Schiffel. Ah, another familiar name here. Thank you very much to Adam Crossingham. And thanks to Christopher Nitkin. Hey, someone I know. And thank you very much to Alex Sun. I actually played a game with him last night. Over into the darkness. And thank you very much to Count Thrain. Son of Thraw. <laughs> and thanks to Eric Stoylan. And thank you very much to Rachel Cutler. And thank you to the singular Colin. And thanks to Gail Perring. <laughs> Another great one here. And thank you very much to Pan, watching you through a black pool in hell. And thank you very much to Sven P. And thanks to Ash the Inflammable. And lastly but not leastly, thank you very much to John Walker. Apologies if we messed up any of your names. Please let us know and we will give it another shot in a future episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please do let other people know whether that means leaving a review somewhere where you get your podcast or just telling your friends about it on social media. Oh, you could hire a plane and skywrite it, though. That might be a bit extravagant. I mean, j just tell people. That's probably easier. Okay, well... A happy New Year to you all, as this is going out in early January 2022. We hope that this year is a good one. <laughs> he says with some doubt in his voice. I was only thinking the other day, you remember when 2012 came along, there was this thing about it going to be the end of the world. <laughs> Give me 2012 again. That was fine. Are we sure they were wrong? They were just a few years late. That's... Yeah. yeah. Early. Well, not the end of the world, we've been a few years late turning up. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, joy to you all in 2022 and uh, join us next time when we accompany Randolph Carter further on his quest for Unknown Kadath. So you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. It's a uh, goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. The town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land. <laughs> I, I, I was going to try saying that without giggling, but... <laughs> I was going to say, mind out of the gutter, Dorwood, come on. <laughs> uh, why, why do the streets squelch when I walk down? Anyway. The town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land. Oh, Christ. <laughs> There's got to be a way of pronouncing How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently 12. There's nothing funny about seamen, Scott. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>
Uh, I'm sorry, I seem to have got myself into a sticky situation here. Um, Shall I say it? The town is the thronged. town is thronged. Oh, well, I think it's matches. Yeah, let's put. Oh, go on. Let's put oh, great. Let's have Matt. Let's have Matt. Uh, yeah, go on. <laughs> okay. 